0: X-ray.
1: It's the Beer Von Show, podcast in Portland on X-ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. We join you not from our respective homes, but here in Southeast Portland, in it turns out my backyard. We are fully vaccinated, we are proximate, we can see each other. It's nice to see you. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Patrick. <laughs> uh, our intention was to do this in the pub in which we recorded the interview, that which you will hear shortly. Uh, but that technical difficulties turned that into kind of a um,
0: classic uh, Birvana show debacle.
1: Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and we decided, we almost went with the debacle, but we decided that it was almost inaudible, Our vo- my voice in particular. And and I understand that since I'm 95% of the Birvana pod, it really is important to hear my voice. Uh, so, so we're redoing this. Anyway, with me as always is Jeff Allworth, author of the forthcoming Beer Bible Second Edition. Hi,
0: Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How and with me is, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, no. Is yeah, Patrick. Geez. Go right Pat-
1: ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with me is Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, but not at the moment because you're free, my friend. <laughs> yeah,
1: this is what happens when you re-record the same thing. That's right. Uh, uh, I'm on, a, as typical, nine-month contract, and that contract has uh, ended on the 15th. So now I'm in my summer period, my fallow period.
0: As far as OSU is concerned, that means like if you died, your corpse would rot for three months before Before anyone even even contacted you. Yeah,
1: Yeah. exactly. Like no one would come to my office. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Well, what's funny is that yeah, this is the period which I don't get paid. But of course, a big part of my job, half of my job, is research. This is often where a lot of that stuff gets (laughs) gets done. Uh, I'm not alone in this. It's just kind of the nature of the business. But yeah, so uh, here we are. I know that you're uh, you're gearing up for the Beer Bible Second Edition World Tour.
0: Well, let's say American <laughs> Tour. Unfortunately, although I'm prepared to go worldwide, uh, I have not gotten any uh, tour stops in Krakow or Sao Paulo or Bombay. So... We'll we'll have to wait on that, but yes, the the uh, North American tour or the I guess the American tour is uh, going to launch on a, around about uh, September twenty third, here in Portland, Oregon, at probably. I'm sh- I'm not sure if I should say this because it's not one hundred percent, but um, but probably <laughs> gigantic brewery.
1: Well, now it's one hundred percent. Yeah, well, fall no, through, yeah, man, you just, exactly. just declare that on the pot <laughs> on the uh, show. Sorry.
0: And then I will be making stops uh, at finer cities in these United States uh, in the following weeks, and then it's going to—I uh, don't know—something like twenty cities uh, yeah, uh, well, nation, now, nationwide.
1: Yeah, we'll now figure out which ones you consider finer. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Sorry, Peoria. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. What are you <laughs> going to say to Cleveland when you don't show up there? All right. Well, <laughs> I that's- would love- that's, I would love yeah. to
0: go to Cleveland. Cleveland is amazing. I've yeah. never been there, but I I used to be a Browns fan. That's how much I admire Cleveland.
1: Yeah, Bernie Kosar era. I know that. exactly. Thing.
0: Totally. <laughs> I know yeah. This I, about you. You know who? And I now hated? we've
1: dated ourselves.
0: You know who I hated? I hated Denver. I hated John Elway. <laughs> oh, Elway. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, today's show, as I mentioned, uh, uh, is all about uh, Unicorn Brewing, which is in my neighborhood um or next door to my neighborhood depends on how you count westmoreland selwood usually that's considered one neighborhood anyway today's show we're visiting unicorn brewing which is also the portland u brew shop and u brew business which we'll which we'll talk about we're going to be uh talking with owner zach vestal uh we've been impressed with the tyner Brewery's beer over the past year and honestly it's one of those um sort of almost hidden gems in my own neighborhood which was rediscovered recently thanks to Zach sort of reaching out with some beer that we tried, including on the pod, uh, which was quite excellent. And so we thought, hey, we need to give this place a, a second look. Uh, Zach purchased the brewery a few years back, and so uh, he's been producing some, some pretty great beer, so we wanted to go check it out. Plus, it's an inter- interesting business because, oh, there's the dog of the pod. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> Knock it off. So it's been a while since we've been back here together, and the dog of the pod has a special fondness for Jeff, <laughs> and uh, which is which is being um, expressed right now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Anyway, yeah, back, he's got a home. Back, back when Cooper, the uh, dog of the pod, was a puppy, uh, he identified me as a litter mate. and so every time he sees me, he wants to romp and play.
1: Yeah, you're definitely there's nothing alpha about you at at all. So, uh, shall I interject, Cooper? Hey, calm down. That'll take care of everything. All right, so uh, we're interviewing Zach Vessel of of Unicorn Brewing. Uh, In a moment, we will share that interview with you. But first, of course, we have to talk about the news.
0: The biggest news during our hiatus... By the way, we forgot to mention, we were on a hiatus for about five weeks, and uh, we should have made comment about that earlier. So I'm going to do it. I'm just inserting it right here, because that's how I roll. Um, Yeah, I had a little family issue, and uh, life became a little bit overwhelming, and we we, we had to step aside from the pod, but we're back. Uh, My family situation is resolved uh, in fine form, actually. I'm quite happy about that. And we we should be on our irregular... Regular schedule. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: uh, the sad thing is that nobody noticed.
0: Uh, uh, yeah. I'm afraid you're right. <laughs> so much so that we even forgot to mention it at the outside of the if pod. A tr-
1: if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, that's right. Did it make any sound, Jeff?
0: The listener didn't comment. And so
1: <laughs> nobody noticed. <laughs> All right, go ahead. News, right. baby. Let's hear it.
0: The biggest news during our hiatus came uh, via. Brewer Brienne Allen at Notch Brewing in Massachusetts. In an unplanned series, she began posting stories of women who had encountered sexism and harassment at breweries in North America and Europe. These did not include her own brewery, I'd like to emphasize. Notch was not implicated. Uh, As the series went viral, more stories flooded in by the hundreds. Uh, and in the wake of the accusations, uh, owners of several high-profile breweries, including Tired Hands and Modern Times, uh, stepped aside from operations. Uh, it was a very big story, and has and it's uh, kind of an unfolding story.
1: Yeah. Uh, in fact, it got picked up by some national news outlets. I saw it. New York Times or some, some national news source. Right. Uh, so a reckoning has begun, which sounds like it's long overdue. And it's one of these, you know, me too things where, uh, one of the things that struck, it just struck me how pervasive this problem is that, uh, it's just so disappointing and so sort of depressing that this is the norm. Uh, well, okay. Maybe the norm is too strong, but this is common.
0: Yeah. I common and pervasive and, and it is true. We're a little bit. I feel a little bit implicated because I was not aware of what was going on, which is uh, an almost willful ignorance to the situation. And so Brienne has done a a great favor to those of us who were just happily cruising along, not aware of what was happening. Um, So I think that cat's out of the bag and we're always going to have to deal with it now. That will be the new normal, uh, that the situation is not good for women and um, people have to do better.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that we in the past have pointed out that the overwhelming white maleness of craft brewing. And we've tried to amplify some female voices, but that's a long way from understanding the problem and the pervasive problem of sex and harassment. And uh, in a related story, Ellen's efforts along with similar posts in the UK by writer uh, Siobhan Buchanan also inspired an open letter in which current and former employees of UK-based BrewDog accused the brewery of building a toxic work environment fueled by fear and unequal treatment. The letter was picked up by a number of major British newspapers and has forced BrewDog to seriously address its culture. So this is not just uh, 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 sex-based harassment, but just a general culture of of uh, of, of fear and and um, uh, uh, harassment, I suppose.
0: Right, uh, kind of classic worker uh, workplace toxicity complaint, uh, which I think. W- You know, we haven't heard so much about the particulars, but I wouldn't be surprised if sexism was a factor in all of this anyway. Um, There was an issue about three months ago where um, the American version of BrewDog, which brews in Ohio, was accused of um, mistreating LGBTQ and trans uh, employees, I think firing them, um, probably illegally. So, this follows up three months later, and you begin to think maybe there's something wrong with the co- the company culture there.
2: Yeah,
1: and and um, not not to excuse it. In fact, maybe it's a it's sort of a a, a learning moment. But I think that a lot of in, in in brewing these are companies that started small and in some cases grew slowly, in some cases grew quite quickly, and suddenly people who are sort of relatively inexperienced business people are managing big staffs and creating, you know, and have a much bigger workplace than they imagined. And I suppose that's one one thing to sort of take away is that uh, as, you know, small business people have had to learn how to, how to run a business, they also need to learn how to treat employees and create an environment. And I think that's often overlooked. And it just sort of happens by default rather than as some intentional process.
0: Yeah, it's true. And I think the... There, there has been a bit of a culture of that mirrors Silicon Valley in some ways in the uh, uh, go fast and break things, or I can't remember what the- Right,
1: right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: craft, craft beer has that same kind of expansionist mindset, and there are real costs to uh, not thinking about culture and thinking about how to treat employees, as you yeah. point out.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully that will help things improve. Hopefully this conversation will now move forward and the culture will begin to change. So, uh, you know, kudos to Brienne and to, um, Sean. Uh, okay. So we should turn to our main topic, which is a fairly lengthy interview with, um, Zach Vestal. So, uh, Zach purchased the brewery a few years ago from the founders who founded this sort of three pronged business, which we'll get to in, in some detail, uh, Zach, we learned, was a graduate of Reed College here in Portland um, and was a former school teacher, uh, similar to my wife. So that was kind of cute. <laughs> and now he runs, runs this business. And I suppose, uh, without further ado, we should probably just get to the interview. Anything Indeed, else you want to add?
0: Well, I'll just add that um, before we did this interview, I was not really sure how the three components of his business fit together. And I was uh, surprised at how integrated and interesting his business model is. And I think you're going to enjoy the interview.
1: All right, let's get to it.
0: Okay, we are here in Southeast Portland in Westmoreland, yeah? Exactly. Or East Eastmoreland? One of the Morelands. Right? Westmoreland, sorry. People <laughs> often call it Selwood, but it's Westmoreland. Yes uh with zach Festel, the owner of the portland u-brew and unicorn brewing uh, operation uh and we are uh here to see the whole operation and then taste some of these unicorn uh, beers which patrick and i have really been enjoying during covid um i think you're punching way above your weight in terms of uh, size, and, and uh, you've got some great loggers here and some nice beers. So we'll, we'll get to those in a bit, but why don't we hear a little bit about your story. Uh, you did not found this business, you came later. So tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you came to uh, own this company.
3: Yeah. Uh, so like many folks, I started as a home brewer. Uh, brewed my first batch with ingredients from Steinbarts in 1991 uh, as a college freshman. Uh, fell instantly in love with it. Uh, then somewhere along the line, uh, got married, became a parent and got a real job. And that cut into uh, home brewing time for sure. Uh, so I was a public school teacher for 15 years. I taught elementary school. Third, fourth and fifth grade uh, at uh, Buckman for a lot of that actually in uh, your neighborhood if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, and this place opened about 10 years ago and I was one of their first customers here. Uh, my homebrew equipment was in a state of disrepair, uh, I, the, you know, basement and garage were full of kid stuff, and uh, I thought it was just an absolutely brilliant um, business model. Show up and it's clean, sanitized equipment, and all I do is bring my recipe or make one, get help with it, and make a perfectly clean, pristine beer every time. Uh, so it came back several times a year, um, and it was actually through one of those batches. I was picking up, uh, uh, I do a did as a home brewer, did a fresh hop uh, batch every year with hops growing in the yard. Was picking up that keg to take home and put in the home keg fridge and share with neighbors and friends. And the then owner mentioned that, um, it was a father-son duo, and mentioned that uh, the father was looking to retire or re-retire, truthfully. He was nearing 80, Um, his wife was ill. He was looking to get out and they were looking to sell. And they said, hey, if you're interested or if you know anybody, um, it's not a crazy amount of money we're looking for, but we'd love to see somebody continue this.
0: Very cool. Uh, no, no, I was
1: gonna just interject that my wife is a third grade teacher. Oh, no. so, <laughs> so we have that background in, yeah. in, in common. So when was this, how many years ago?
3: That was in uh, hop harvest season of 2017. So okay. almost four years ago now. About four years um, I drove home with my head swirling uh i wasn't looking to get out of the classroom certainly was suffering some effects of burnout which you might be familiar with
1: <laughs> yeah after covid for sure yeah
3: <laughs> uh yeah timing was good uh, getting out um told my wife about it uh i expected her to say something like you're crazy what do you know about running a business uh, and she was actually quite supportive uh, i owe her and my daughter a huge debt of gratitude. So scraped together uh, what I could, borrowed from friends and family. Uh, Turns out banks don't want to give you a loan for a business you've never worked in. (laughs) Um, Every SBA loan application was years in the industry and I had to put zero, end of application. But anyway, uh, figured a way to make it work
0: and uh, uh, yeah, here we are. Very cool. All right. Well, let's walk around the business a little bit, and you can tell us uh, what we're going to see because you're really running three businesses in, in one here. You got a homebrew shop, you have the U-Brew, and then you have Unicorn Brewing, and this cool pub that we're standing in now. So uh, we'll we'll take it in order. So let's let's follow you into the uh, homebrew shop, and you can talk about that. Sounds good. <laughs> all right well you're gonna have to cut some of this stuff out so it's a, a fairly standard homebrew store you have here uh, and I know that homebrew stores generally re- revolve around a homebrew homebrew community so uh, talk a little bit about how this part of the business works uh, it's really
3: unique in our case because this shop supplies not only Local Southeast Portland homebrewers, but also is the supply arm for our nano brewery downstairs. Uh, so, some homebrewers know that and know that when they come buy uh, uh, grains and yeast and, and hops from us, it's likely to be good and fresh, even if it's a more obscure grain, because we go through so much volume by also using some of that stuff downstairs. Um, so, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique model for sure. Uh, home brewing, interestingly, had, had been in, in decline for several years mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of inverse relationship with the number of breweries. Um, logical, I guess, uh, until COVID. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, we probably wouldn't have made it not probably we would not have made it through COVID without the homebrew shop being allowed to stay open and, right. and deemed essential Raft only nano brewery was a very tough business to be in yeah. during the stay at home orders. <laughs> um, right uh luckily people were looking for things to do at home you know sourdough bread baking gardening all of those kinds of things homebrewing fit right in with that so we had lots of folks get into it for the first time mm-hmm. or get back into it uh, and honestly that kept the lights on and, and got us
0: through COVID that and unfortunately staff layoffs. I know that uh FH Steinbart one of the kind of like the OGs of homebrew shops in the United States um, is, I don't know, two or three miles on the same street. <laughs> that street. that, that <laughs> a direction. Uh, and they really closed down a, a lot more. Do you think that it was, that, that people found you who might've been normal, uh, might've been regular Steinbart shoppers? And uh, yeah. We definitely had some of that. Uh, there, though we sell a lot of
3: the same products, um, there is probably less overlap in our customer bases than you might think. Um, we're many times smaller than their shop. Uh, as you mentioned, they you know the oldest shop in the country, I think 103 or 4 years, something like that. Um, they do a lot of commercial uh, sales. Uh, they do you know wholesale to other businesses. Um, we're much smaller in volume and in size. Uh, because of that, we can give I'm not I'm not knocking how they do it. We can give first timers a little bit more time when they walk in and say, hey. I've never brewed before. No. I remember when I was 19 and walked into Steinbarts 30 years ago, said, hey, I've never brewed before. Can you help me? They handed me um, Charlie Papazian's the complete <laughs> joy of home brewing and said, get out of here, kid, and come back when you know what you want. Uh, because they were busy, right? yes, you know, and they yeah. were busy and they knew I was gonna spend, you know, $18 or something, and, and uh, they didn't wanna spend a lot of time. But I get it, I understand that. Right. So we've tried to cater more toward but it's it's because we can but uh also probably because of my educational background
0: mm-hmm. i still teach i just now teach people to brew you know, right. even if it's not with us so. so um you've you've owned this uh business for four years and in that four years the uh type of beer brewed in america has really shifted have you seen uh, a change in the way home brewers brew or, or or do homebrewers are they a breed apart who are still just doing their own thing it's definitely changed um You know in the in the
3: early 90s we were home brewing to make unusual beer hard to find beer i think there were maybe 10 breweries in the whole state of oregon in 1991 when i brewed that first horrible batch of amber ale Uh, (laughs) was trying to make something like full sale everybody starts with amber ale. (laughs) that's right it was a you know (laughs) full sale amber was a a a life-changing experience that first sip Uh, that and you know sierra nevada pale ale oh my God, what is this? How do I do that? Um, So yes, people still often start with an amber ale. Uh, So yeah, three or four years ago, homebrewers all wanted to make hazy IPAs. Uh, Then they discovered that, you know, using a pound and a half of the world's most expensive hops from the Southern Hemisphere in a five-gallon batch (laughs) turns their batch from, you know, $30 or $40 for five gallons to $60 or $70 really quickly. Uh, So we've definitely seen less of that. And I would say it I see it more, I've heard people say like, oh, you know, home brewers are the innovators and then commercial breweries um, uh, copy what home brewers start doing. And I, I see it the other way around. People come in and say, hey, I had this white tea lager at Breakside, but they only made a very small batch and they didn't do it again. Can you help me try to make something like that? So I see people getting inspiration from such a vibrant craft beer scene that we have here in Portland. And, and using that as, as their inspiration and, and guiding their what they want to make next.
0: Cool. And uh, when people come to use the U Brew, I assume they get their they get the ingredients here. So it's like a, a hand and glove thing that way. That's right.
3: So we help them make a recipe. Sometimes they come in with one if they're you know more experienced home brewers or they found a recipe online. More often than not, they come in and say, I don't know, I want to make something like you know, I like I like citrusy and piney. I don't like you know. Juicy and sweet or or whatever. And so we help them uh, custom make a recipe. So we have a few thousand recipes
0: uh, That we've made uh, with a BeerSmith piece of uh, um, recipe software, right? Uh, I have questions about that whole you brew thing. So maybe we should go down there Do you have any more on the the homebrew shop? No, I'm good. All right, and we we may we may come back and talk some more about homebrewers Um, I think probably a good what half of our audience is a home? their home brewers, so I they would s- suspect. Yes. Yeah,
2: <laughs>
0: all right. Now we're heading down into the basement of the building. All right, here we are in the little uh brewery, which has incredibly cute little uh vessels in here. So, why don't you tell us what we're looking at? Yeah. Uh, these are 20 gallon steam jacketed kettles. So, uh,
3: whether we're brewing for us or on a U Brew day, and actually in the COVID era, uh, uh, we do a, a combination of those to try to make things pencil out. Uh, but each one of these will result in a half barrel batch of beer. It's a 20 gallon kettle, so it'll make a 15 gallon batch of beer. Uh, right behind you guys are uh, 20 gallon Blickman mash tons. Uh, they uh, are homebrew scale, uh, but but work for our setup here. So the reason we have six individual mash tons and six individual kettles is not because we love manual labor, <laughs> um, but because it allows us to teach the classes. When the former owners um, uh, built this part of the system, they really only had in mind doing the U-brew part of the business, right. the commercial brewing came later. Yeah, right. In fact, as I understand it, somebody took a U-brew class and asked during the class, can I put this on tap at the bar I work at? Uh, and, you know, a light <laughs> bulb went off, like, hey, we could do commercial brewing on this same scale, which is, you know, a tiny scale. But, uh, but yes, so it's customizable when we make the largest batch we make uh, at a time is a three barrel batch. So we would fill all six of these mash tons, all six kettles with the same exact recipe right. and pump into those uh, conical fermenters at the other end of the building. That I'll show you in a minute. But each one lets us make we can also brew six different kegs in one day which is a very unique setup.
0: So if you're a home brewer and you come in here, you can brew uh, a 15 gallon batch, which will make a a standard keg, or I suppose you could, could you do less than that? How does that, uh, you gotta do 15?
3: (laughs) No, what you do is find a couple of friends. Um, So we book by the batch, not by the person. So so could could you put them in three different corny kegs when it comes time to? Yes, Yes. absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. so a lot of folks do that. Three is a very common size group. Everybody gets five gallons that way. Uh, whether they split it into their own corny kegs or come back and use our bottling station. Uh.
0: So one thing that uh, I've tried to be an evangelist for is uh, getting people to to do whole grain brewing, which I, I think is not that much harder, uh, and, and actually the, the, the experience is so much richer. And my, my guess is that's the only thing you do now here. So uh, do you have people who have never brewed before, and this is that, the way that they learn how to, to do actual brewing? So yeah, talk about teaching people to brew down here
3: yeah there's a there's a ceiling with extract we definitely sell it in the shop Um, it is i do still think it's a it's a a decent way to get folks into controlling time temperature sanitation bottling carbonating in bottles you know try an extract batch maybe with some steeping grains uh a couple of times see if it's something you like and then and then move on we also have folks who just dive right in but yes, that's a very common um, type of customer who signs up for our U-Brew, uh, either who has never brewed before or has done a couple of extract batches and wants to see the, the mash process, that actual sacrification. How do I get fermentable sugar out of this raw material instead of using a, you know, sticky syrup where that part's been done already?
0: And uh, in the context of new people learning how to brew, do you do a class that way or do you do it one yes. at a time? or so? We can run, in the pre-COVID era, we could run up to six groups at one
3: time. Uh, we're at 50% capacity, so right now we're only booking three groups at a time, uh, maximum, uh, and only four people per group. We used to allow up to eight people per keg. It would get you know rowdy and noisy down here, but we were allowed to do that, and people liked hanging out in a brewery. Uh, and Hopefully we're getting back to that real soon. Uh, but yes, um, I forgot your question, Jeff.
0: Uh, yeah, I was just asking how the classes
3: go, how you. Oh, yeah. So they're side by side. So everybody mashes in at the same time. after we get their recipes made and the the raw ingredients, uh, the, the barley, uh, the grain milled upstairs, we come down here, everybody mashes in at one time. So then everybody does, you know, the Vorloff step at the same time, everybody's sparging at the same time. Uh, and then at the end of the day, we pump through this heat exchanger into each individual fermenter. Right. but yes, we, we teach it as a class. I tell people they can learn as much or as little as they want. Uh, we definitely have folks who want to hang out in the pub and drink beer all afternoon and you know maybe catch a game and just sit and talk and come down when it's like time to add hops and then high five and go, yeah, we made beer. <laughs> we also have folks who are down here for the entire four to four and a half hours right. picking our brains about what's really going on right now. What are these enzymes doing? Why am I doing this? Why do we do it that way? Right. How would you do it on this other kind of beer?
0: Yeah. Um, and then do you have people coming back on the cold side like, Uh, working with the dry hops and carrying it all the way through, or is that more rare? We do that part. On occasion, we have folks who want to come back and, you know, especially if they've got their
2: own
3: homegrown hops. uh, Scheduling-wise, it's fairly disruptive for our flow. Like, today, we're really just working on our commercial beers. Um, So, yeah, we take care of dry hopping, uh, uh, cold crashing, kegging it. Uh, So folks come back generally about four weeks, uh, three to four weeks for ales, more like six if they want
0: to do a lager. That's amazing. You, you can actually come down here and your first beer could be a lager, which Absolutely. is a big advantage over the actual homebrew setup, which Patrick and I have to wait for winter for.
3: <laughs> right. And that's, that's a common homebrew uh, refrain is, you know, hey, I've got a spot in the basement that I can actually do uh, lagers. But, uh, you know, there are a couple of lager yeasts. The old refrain of, you know, you can't make a, a, a tasty lager above 55 degrees. is really, I, I would I would argue against that. It might not be... The crispest, uh, um, uh, snappiest uh, uh, Czech Pilsner you've ever had. But um, Bohemian lager yeast really works uh, 3470, people refer to it as. It's mm-hmm. a bit okay. the dry. Uh, it works pretty darn well in the low 60s. If you've got a spot in your house, even up to 65, mm-hmm. you can make a
0: pretty clean lager. Interesting. We may have to consider a warmer warmer uh, lagering. Also, we've been uh, investigating on the podcast the Quike loggers, yeah. which also seem really to do well. So yeah. Yeah. Patrick, you yeah.
1: had Oh, I was just going to say that when you have six groups down here all doing home, a uBrew
3: set you can have six different recipes that you're managing all at the same time. Absolutely. And, and likewise, uh, on a commercial brew day, if we don't have a class scheduled, yeah. we can brew six different kegs. Right for our pub, for our customers. Yeah. We have a couple of bars who buy one keg at a time. Right. So, you know, a custom single keg batch is really uh, an unusual niche. It's yeah. not something any other breweries are offering. There might be a couple who will let you rename their beer, a house beer or whatever. <laughs> right. um, but uh, but that's a, a unique part of our setup, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you,
1: well, I was, are you done with the You brew, I was gonna switch to the commercial side. No, I,
0: I didn't, well, one, one question is, how many people in, in the course of a month or a year uh, take do the you brew Highly variable. Uh, pre-pandemic, we
3: did yeah, a lot. Yeah, pre-pandemic. Yeah, we did a lot of um, uh, team-building events. People brewed their wedding beers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, you know, Great. brew a keg of beer for their Super Bowl party. Um, the team-building events, we've had one since the pandemic hit. And it's just a, sure. a matter of numbers. But uh, Intel has sent about 30 groups out over the years. Nice. Um, they are teams that, that come back, you know, year after year. Yeah. Uh, so, sheer number, uh, on a good year, it was probably, you know, 200
0: batches, so was that 100, 100 barrels or something. Of those people who kind of brew here for the first time, what do you think the uh, recidivism rate is, or uh, pe- <laughs> people who stick with it and don't just do one and done? Uh, we have an a, a
3: excellent uh, uh, return rate uh, on, on customers, repeat customer. Um, there are definitely folks who just do it once and like, eh, that was cool, I wasn't. They're generally folks who didn't feel passionate, uh, passionately about beer in the first place. Yeah, right. uh, we also have a lot of folks who never are going to brew at home, aren't interested in another hobby to spend money on, but come here once or twice a year um, because it has deepened their appreciation and their understanding of the beer they drink and, and get regularly from any of
0: the other breweries yeah I'm really glad I asked you about Steinbarts uh, because uh, now seeing this and hearing you talk about this educational component and the Ubrew brew component, it really is a, a, a markedly different business.'re you're, you're really in the business of of getting people launched, whereas Steinbarts is sort of for the the kind of professional home brewer who goes down there and you know knows exactly what he, he or she wants now many she's, which is great to see.
3: It is, it's, a, it's a, a fairly different customer base. There's some overlap for sure. I, we send customers there when there's something we don't stock. They send folks here uh, when there's something they don't have or, or you know they need help as a beginning brewer or whatever and can't, can't find that at another shop in town. Uh, yeah, very different. You mentioned you know the, the educational component. Uh, we also have many former employees, former interns, former customers who have used this as a, uh, a launch pad into the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a former employee right now at Breakside, we've got one up at Ecliptic, uh, we've got a former intern uh, who just opened his own brewery in um, Peru. Um, uh, oh,
0: I think, who is that? I, I may know that
3: person. Belko is his first name. Belko Schaus- Schauspier.
0: Yeah, maybe. Actually, now I can't remember because my brain is so old and soft, but um, yeah, I know that there's a Peruvian who is an American trained or American who's contacted me. So that's interesting. That's Pretty cool. You have an international, you have an international footprint. Nice work. Yeah, yeah all over the world. We're, uh, we're
3: we we train lots of employees uh, who then go on and work for uh, larger breweries. That's really
0: cool. Yeah, let's talk. It, it is a nice transition to commercial brewing, Patrick. What were you going to ask about that, or did you were you going to ask that we go upstairs and get a beer?
1: No. Well, I have a thousand questions, but the first is that uh, it's a big step from becoming from being a home brewer to becoming a commercial brewer, even even at this sort of scale. So. Uh, was that daunting? Have you have you worked at other breweries or was this just
3: jumping in with both feet? Uh, there's dove in yeah. um, <laughs> The uh, the the original owner the father-son duo. Yeah. Uh, I kept the son on uh, for six months okay. as an employee Yeah, uh, that was part of our our sales agreement, right? Uh, so he continued to brew trained me uh, on this particular system, right. Though i had done it many times as a customer. Uh, I hadn't taught the class mm-hmm. uh, so he stayed on for six months before he left. Uh, the commercial side, they had a few accounts, um, but that's something uh, that uh, with the help of another now former employee who has left and opened his own bar um, and has a couple of our beers on tap, thankfully, uh, he was a big help in that. He had a lot of connections in uh, the service industry around town, yeah. um, but uh, you know, finding someone you know who works at a bar or has a bar can very often help you get in uh, to get a handle yeah. Um, but yeah, for a year and a half or so, I did a lot of sales calls myself, right. like one afternoon a week where I had somebody cover the, the, the shop and I was out just doing, doing sales calls. We are at a point right now uh, for the first time in three and a half years where I actually have some customers waiting on beer, uh, where we're brewing at our capacity, Excellent. our tanks are full. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. And, Thanks very much.
0: It's a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. And you're doing some canning. Uh, is that you have a mobile canner who comes by? Is that how that works? No, that's just a single-can
3: filler, t- uh, similar to a, a crawler machine, what's it called? Uh, a Those are just canned off the taps, uh, so it's not shelf-stable, not for grocery store. We don't have labels approved for that. And we sell to-go cans. It's basically like a growler. So We sell them at the farmer's market up the street, and then uh, to-go beers in our pub. And that was just a uh, pandemic pivot, really. Uh, we signed up with um, Road Beers. I know you had uh, Casey on the pod. Yeah,
0: I was going to say, because I knew that you were up with Road Beers, so I knew you were doing some kind of package that uh, was
3: just a, a pandemic adaptation just you know hey we're a 250 barrel a year draft only brewery and bars are closed uh, you know shit what do we Elf. do <laughs> 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 yeah right <laughs> we're gonna be done in a few months here um yeah. and uh you know like I said unfortunately my only flexible cost was employees so yeah. laid them all off on that Monday March 16th yeah. uh, uh last year and then we did get a small PVP loan. I brought uh, uh, three of them back. Uh-huh. Um, didn't know what we were gonna do at first. Like, I guess let's make lagers because they'll sit around for months. Yeah. Right. Um, so it really turned, you know, some breweries got into uh, barrel aging and, and really focused more on that Breakside, side, I know. Yep. Got way more into uh, aging and blending because they had time. I think, what, something like 60% of their sales were draft. Pre-pandemic,
0: right, and that's a big brewery. Yes, that's <laughs> 60% of a lot of barrels.
3: Yeah, uh, and you know, 100% of our sales were draft, um,
0: though 100% of a much smaller number.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, nobody wants to go through a pandemic to get to this place, but now you do have this n- uh, new way of reaching customers, uh, which I assume will carry forward, and and that's kind of a nice way of you know, uh, meeting people at the farmers market and doing other things and getting your product out there. Absolutely, and just. Learning how to run even leaner, like uh, you know, until
3: uh, until the afternoon when the when the pub picks up. Now we just have one person doing the pub and the homebrew shop and running back and forth. Right. Yeah. Uh, except for on the weekend, of course. But uh, on a weekday, when I mean, it just doesn't justify it, uh, we've gotten more efficient uh, down here thanks to um, uh, my my brewery employee uh, Darren. Uh, he's helped us push the the limits of this tiny little system, and you know. And hey, what, what beers can we crank through a little faster? What if we, you know, uh, we weren't harvesting yeast until a few years ago, uh, just because it's such a small scale to you know use a couple of packets of yeast in a in a half barrel batch was not a, a significant cost. Um, but we are harvesting yeast now and getting much better pitch rates. We added you know inline oxygenation and um, and a lot of that was thanks to the extra time. Like while the pub was closed for you know six of the last fifteen months or right. whatever, yeah. uh, and and no classes, so like well, <laughs> let's uh let's up our logger game because they take bloody forever to make them well, and and just improve everything we can and and hopefully come out the other side of this. Very cool. Uh,
0: should we go, let's upstairs? go upstairs? All yeah. right,
2: but
0: okay. all right, here I we see. here we are back up in the pub, which is a really charming little pub. You've got nice wood paneling. It's cozy. Uh, I, you know, if it were a shed in the backyard after COVID, I would love it, but it's actually a very charming little pub here. Um, and you run out of, out of this site, uh, Unicorn Brewing. So first of all, Patrick and I are both amazed that no one else had Unicorn. How did you get Unicorn? Is that amazing or what? <laughs> I inherited it from the previous owners. And uh, I'll
3: be totally honest. I didn't love the name at first. I had a couple ideas. For, for names that were more uh, uh, neighborhood based or related more to my background or you know, that meant something to me. I thought, you know, rainbows and glitter and <laughs> oh my God, are we marketing beer to kids? Like, so I had a couple names uh, I picked out and in the, it was about a six month transition between the time we had a verbal agreement for me to take over and when permits and licenses and paperwork all finally came through and the, and the deal was done. And in that time, uh, we picked up two new accounts that put our beer on tap as Unicorn. And I saw customers coming back in here saying, hey, I never knew you guys were here. I had your beer up at you know, Proper Pint, or I had your beer up at the Delta Cafe. And I went, okay, so that has some value now. I guess, I guess we're keeping Unicorn. <laughs> we redid the logo and fixed up the pub and, and and some other changes but uh yeah it was the name I inherited and the the previous owners cliff and jay they named it three or four years into their business Mm -hmm. so they had some early beers on tap at green dragon as portland you brew and pub and customers clearly were confused like is that somebody's homebrew that's on tap in this bar which you know a would be illegal and and b was terrible for marketing Um, And so they came up with the name Unicorn. I too am blown away that no one else in the United States has Unicorn Brewing. Uh, There's one in Australia, I think, but we actually have the federal copyright on Unicorn Brewing, uh, which uh, blew me away that no one had that yet. Yeah, they would even take uh, beers to festivals, like I think at the
1: Fresh Hops Fest Mm -hmm. they had a Portland U Brew beer on, and I think that's just not a good idea. Right.
0: Yeah, who, who's the you? Wait, who yeah. made this beer? <laughs> so one thing that we've been really impressed with is you seem to, like us, be a fan of traditional styles. Uh, and we were, uh, over COVID, we had a, a few of your, you, you gave us some cans of your lagers, which were really clean and well-made. And given the the size of your system, and now we've learned that you're not a, a you know, you haven't gone to brewing school, that you, you're a, a homebrew guy. Um, We've just been really impressed, so tell us a little bit about your, uh, you know, your brewing approach and, and, uh, yeah, tell us about the brewery.
3: Sure. Uh, First of all, thanks. That's that's high praise. I appreciate that. Um, uh, I am a huge fan of beer-flavored beer. Uh, I, like many Portlanders, um, drank almost exclusively IPAs for five or ten years or something Um, uh, from, you know, maybe Bridgeport IPA on i um, not exclusively but almost entirely IPA's uh, and I frankly just got burned out on them and, and and had always heard oh you can't make a good pilsner at home and so I never attempted it as a home brewer I think Kohl's or cream ale or you know a really light blonde ale fermented in the low 60s was, was about as, as as far as I ever got as a, as a home brewer um, but I mean, honestly, the the biggest reason we do a lot of traditional styles is that's what we like to drink, and we were hopeful that we would find enough people who also were burned out on smoothie sour seltzer and um, you know trail mix in their beer or buckets of you know flavor extract. There's a, obviously a market for that. People stand in line for those beers and trade them online. So <laughs> you know maybe I'm the idiot, um, but uh, we have definitely. I mean, you should see when we put an amber ale on tap. People, uh, definitely people, you know, our age and a little older go, wow, I haven't seen one of those on a tap list in years, and drink it and go, that's re-. yeah, it didn't stop being a good style. Pilsner never stopped being a good beer. You know, I'm thrilled to see the lager come back, the um, uh, lager uh, renaissance that's going on right now. Um, those beers didn't stop being good just because hazy IPAs blew up. Um, so, it, it started because that's what we like to drink. Uh, I, you know, Van, Van Havig of Gigantic disagrees. Uh, uh, he says, you know, being a Pacific Northwest, hop-focused brewer is much harder because you have to balance all those things. He, he bristles when he hears somebody say, oh, Pilsner is the hardest, hardest beer to make. He's like, no, it isn't, the book's out. Like, read, the, read the, the Coons book. It tells you exactly how to do it. There's only three ingredients in it. Like, that's not hard it does i disagree with him a little bit in that it lays bare any flaws that might be in your process or in yeah. your um, uh, uh, in your brew house so as a very small brewer uh, or you know as a as a home brewer i, I do think it's easy to throw ridiculous quantities of citra and mosaic in a beer and what do you know it tastes really hoppy like <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Nothing
0: against Gigantic at all. <laughs> I
3: have nothing but respect for them.
0: Oh, we're definitely telling Van about this. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I uh, actually went to college uh, uh, with him. He was a couple years ahead of me. but uh. Oh,
0: really? That's very cool. So he famously went to Reed, so I assume that means he went to Reed as well. We went to Lewis and Clark, so we won't hold that against you. Right.
3: <laughs> I went to Reed and never left the neighborhood, basically. <laughs> I've been here since. Yeah,
0: same with Gigantic. Actually, uh, where we sit right now is, I don't know, a mile or two away from Gigantic. a mile. Yeah. Yeah. If you could go straight that way, so. Uh in, in making these styles, uh, you, you know, you self-select your audience, too. The audience is always drawn. Are you finding uh, a clientele who likes these when you throw on? Well, I'm drinking an ESB right now, which is a super passe style that people don't like. Uh, so are people being attracted to these, or, or are you still selling, like, half of the beer? Even though you have uh, eight taps, are, are still, it's still 50% of the beer IPA, or, or what's going on with that?
3: Our Pilsner actually is our top seller. Um, unicorn Juice is a close second, that's our, our hazy. Um, the uh, Yes, the market is different, the, the I'll just say it, the under 30 crowd uh, definitely orders more of our IPAs. Uh, the over 30 crowd, I don't know if they're just nostalgic for styles that they got into craft beer on, you know, Stouts and, and, and Ambers and ESBs and, um, or or if it's just, you know, folks who never liked IPAs who now can come to a little neighborhood brewery and go, hey, something besides IPAs. I mean, it, I mean yeah, it's an interesting niche. We obviously make IPAs. Uh, I still enjoy them. Uh, we have to make them, uh, you know, unless you're gonna be like chucking that for somebody and not ever brew an IPA. I think their last one was three or four years ago. I, I just read somewhere. Right. That's incredible. Um, but it the pendulum is swinging a little bit, I mean, Three years ago, to have two or three bloggers on tap at a brewery our size was almost unheard of. I, it's getting less and less that way. Uh, there's definitely more interest in clean, subtle, nuanced styles, which I'm a huge fan of. I would much rather have two or three pints of a four and a half five percent Pilsner than one of a 8% IPA, personally. Well, I was going to say, I think that the, the, the craft beer market
1: is... I was, was going to say bifurcating, but probably just evolving, so there's older people who've now grown up with craft beer who are looking for maybe more subtlety, for me a little less alcohol, more sessionable beers, and that sort of brings you back to these traditional styles, while at the same time there's people who want, you know, milkshakes and, and other things, and, and young people, that was my theory about the IPA, Is young people, including myself, sort of like to get hit in the face with stuff when you're young, you like those right. big experiences. So uh, it makes a lot of sense. I think that craft beer is evolving in those both ways at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I think.
2: Comment, sorry,
0: I, well, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, when I go to a, a pub, I'll have two or three pints, and I, I, often one of them is an IPA. So I'll have right. a lager, I'll have a you know a saison or an ESB or something like that. Then I'll I'll have my IPA because I'm in a I'm a good Oregonian. I still like IPAs quite a bit. Right. Um, So how did you learn how to, uh, you know, you came from the homebrew background and then you have this uh, finicky small system, which makes it a lot more difficult to brew consistently when you have so many, uh, you know, when you have a smaller system like that. Uh, And yet you're producing really clean, uh, true to style styles here. um, Did... Has that been a, an, an iterative process? or I assume this is a challenging way to uh, make, make good beer. Yeah, we do it the hard way.
3: Um, uh, a couple things. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I, I did learn a ton from the, uh, the previous owner, Jay. Uh, he's been a professional brewer since the late 80s. He got his start making lemon lager at Saxer, which yeah. you guys are, like me, old enough to, to know uh, that beer. Uh, he started with Saxer in, like, 88 or 89 and made a career out of it. Um, After he left here, he went out to Fort George. Uh, He brewed for McMinimins. He was the head brewer at Max's Fannel Creek right before they opened this place. Uh, It's pretty much the only work he's done as an adult. So I learned a ton from Jay, uh, Jay Webb, for those of you uh, who've been around brewing for a long time. Uh, And then uh, two employees, one former and and one current, who both have much more of a science background than I do. Uh, They uh, studied biology and chemistry in college. Because of their love of fermentation, I don't have a science background at all. I know what I like. I can read and study, and you know, and drink beers when I travel, and and uh, and, and talk to other folks, and you know, read blogs and listen to podcasts and, and such. Um, but uh, so I owe a lot to a lot of other people on on how to make consistently clean beers. A couple of things that work in our favor. Uh, for one you will never have two of our Pilsners of different batches next to each other. And that's just a function of our size and being draft only. So if we were in grocery stores, you would expect when you buy uh, a bottle or a can of Wanderlust IPA, it better taste just like the other bottle or can of Wanderlust that you just had from the other store. Um, you're never gonna have ours side by side, so we can tweak recipes and change them. And then the other thing is, if it's not good, we don't put it on tap. In, you know, Even as a tiny brewery, we're not afraid to, to dump a batch. It's a small batch when we dump it, thank God. Um, uh, you know, when I, I, when I took over, I, I, I dreamed of like, oh my God, I can't wait to you know, take a keg of our, our best pilsner and put it in my keg fridge at home. And, and uh, truthfully, I have not done that once. Because if it's a keg of our best pilsner, I want it untapped in here. Right, right. So I take home experimental batches, <laughs> batches that didn't turn out quite right, um, which is horribly embarrassing when friends come over and they're like, hey, you have a brewery. Like, what do you have? You know, and I offer them a beer. I'm like, yeah, this is this one that didn't turn out quite right. Or, you know, <laughs> this is this beer that's a little long in the tooth and uh, it was just going to go to waste. And uh, you know, apologize as I give them free beer in the front yard. Which is, Anyway, <laughs> strange way to... to uh, you know, I guess, I guess that makes
0: sense. Yeah, it, I mean, it does. And homebrewers yeah. would recognize that yeah. too.
2: Right.
3: And it's difficult enough
1: to brew across such a wide variety of styles, but then to have such a small sort of archipelago of little, <laughs> of little uh, uh, component parts and keeping everything clean, everything working right, not having any contamination
3: is remarkable yeah but i mean thanks uh but you know if we have to substitute a hop because we can't get enough of a certain hop on the on the spot market you know it's not a big deal especially in our you know our hazy ipa we've changed the hops out on that several times we only have one hazy on tap so and and our customers know that we're mostly a neighborhood focused pub folks know that they can come in and there's always something new on tap and, and and we've had customers ask like hey you know this, this Pilsner is a little bit different and, you know, when, oh yeah, this is our Czech style. The last one was the Italian style Pilsner or, you know, a Japanese inspired. And usually our, our, we'll tell folks when they order it, like, hey, it's a Czech Pilsner right now. So it just says Pilsner up there on the tap list all the time. Sometimes it's Czech, sometimes it's Italian, sometimes it's German. Uh, we do a Hellas. Um, but yeah, we incorporated a lot of homebrew tricks from, uh, uh, from, from my past and then and two employees. Things like, you actually can do a step mash on a, on a system like that uh, and mash at two different temperatures. You start a little thicker, uh, we do a, a German technique called Hockers. Uh We mash at about 144 degrees for a, a, a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, and then raise it with, with the addition of some boiling water. So even though they are built as single infusion mash tons, we figured out ways to do, and our beer is all unfiltered. If you want your Kolsch or your Pilsner to be crystal clear, just wait. Yeah, right, right, it right. takes bloody forever. Yeah. <laughs> I can make a hazy IPA from brew day to pub, nine, ten days. Our Pilsner and Kolsch are really not at their peak until about eight weeks after brew day.
0: Um,
2: anyway.
0: So it, uh, there's... the the business is quite integrated. I see how all three pieces work together, uh, but I could also see how um, trying to operate a commercial brewery off the system you have could be challenging. Do you have any uh, plans to expand that component of it? Could be. Sorry, I was laughing at that. Could be challenging. Yeah, it
3: is. Like I said, we, we do it the hard way. Um, but the, the pieces all work together. People come in the shop and know they can also get a pint while they pick up their supplies. Um, they come in the pub and they ask, hey, what's going on downstairs? Those people are having fun and they see there's a class going on and they're like, Well yeah, maybe I'll sign up for one of those. So challenging, yes. Uh, uh, we're on tap at about 12 places right now with things reopening and a couple of them have significant outdoor space that they've added. Uh, we're actually brewing at our capacity for the last three months or so. Um, cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious plans for growth. It probably will involve, in fact, I'm going to visit somebody tomorrow and talk about possibly doing some contract brewing of our IPA and our Pilsner. Um, like, right now, you know, we, you, you looked at our, our conicals down there, out of those eight full tanks, Four of them are full of Pilsner, and three of them are full of IPAs. That doesn't leave a lot of space for the other one-offs, and so if I can, if it makes sense, I've never contract brewed, I have no idea if it does, so I'll know a little more tomorrow. Um, if it makes sense to do you know, a 10-barrel a batch of our IPA and our Pilsner somewhere, and then free up the, the brew house for other stuff. I, I know what I'm not gonna do, which is immediately take on additional debt to a bigger system or bigger tanks that space downstairs is limited
2: right
3: yeah uh, my next brewery will not be in a basement yeah, <laughs> um, that's, yeah our, that exactly. that's our keg hoist right there yeah we um, saw that. Yeah, that's how kegs come from upstairs so
0: zach's pointing to a winch uh that's mounted to the the roof and there's a hole in the floor that takes uh that allows the kegs to be dropped down into the, the basement
3: yeah so the previous owners found this space we didn't put the hole in the floor i remember that uh, it that's was exactly. a, a a real estate office and they had a cubicle farm downstairs with no natural light so
2: Terrible.
3: they put that hole in the floor in the skylight just to get some natural light downstairs oh, yes. so their employees didn't all quit or go crazy so or both <laughs> It's kind of a cute way to feature the brewery and I can't see too much from up here but on a, I, I wish you guys were here on a brew day when uh, the first hop edition goes in or when when we first mash in oh, the, the smell rises, the rises up into the pub. Right. so you know folks come in and, and they're like oh what is that? What's the, like? Oh, that's our brewery right down there. <laughs> Kids come in and go,
0: Yeah, Who's cooking <laughs>
3: vegetables or whatever? Right.
0: Uh, right.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, as far as the contract brewing goes, I think you should save plenty of space in your uh, in your conicals for English English ales. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm a proponent I'm of taking the pilsner elsewhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, there is actually uh, an elegance to that where you have um, these small batches that you can then turn to more experimental beer, whether it's traditional or not traditional uh, because you only se- you only have to sell a keg of it, right So it's uh, something you can do. Uh, so I think we're running along along here. do you have anything more, Patrick? I just want to ask a quick question
1: about the last bit of your business is you're also a publican, which, uh, which as a teacher, I suppose you probably like interacting with people a little older than, <laughs> than in the classroom. But uh, uh, how do you find that part of the business? Because I've always uh, thought it would be a
3: fun to be a publican. Uh, I too dreamed of that when I did other work and really enjoyed it at first. Uh, That was my favorite part at first. Uh, And then really came to enjoy the shop um, because of the educational aspect in there. Someone walks in and says, my neighbor gave me 50 pounds of plums, what do I do? I'm like, okay, here's a book on how to make plum wine. And here's the fermenter and the yeast and the sugar and everything you're gonna need for that. Here's how to keep it all clean and sanitary. Uh, And then, uh, but I mean, all the while, the joy of creating a good batch of beer. I mean, you're right. Ultimately, it's about uh, making something that brings people together yeah. in in a pub. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that part's fantastic. There are definitely days when you know I'm trying to get some paperwork done or or, or something, and there's three people in here on a you know at on noon at a, at a Tuesday, and I'm like. Man, I should really be downstairs. I should be, you know, dry hopping that IPA. I should be kegging that that Pilsner. But, but again, it all works together. And if we get somebody to realize they actually really like a Pilsner or a Kolsch or an English Mild or something, uh, you know, they come back. And, and drinking at the source, there's nothing like that. I mean, when I'm a customer, when I go to other places. traveling or whatever, which I hope we'll do again soon, Um, drinking at a brewery, there's nothing like that. You're looking at the tanks, you're, you know, if you're lucky, you're seeing the brew house in operation, uh, you know, sitting at Freem, there's a couple of tables there where your elbow is on a fermenter (laughs) right next to it. And you're watching somebody come out and do, you know, samples and, and, uh, you know, or, or transfer from, you know, to a bright tank or whatever. There's nothing like that. Um, there's no shortage of good beer around so we have to provide something that folks can't get somewhere else Um, and in our case it's you know a a traditional style beer brewed right in their neighborhood Um, we're not gonna take over I have no plans to to, you know be on grocery store shelves I once said to somebody I'm just trying to be the best brewery in the zip code (laughs) and somebody pointed out uh, gigantic has our same zip code (laughs) As do a few
0: others, I'm sure. Um, but uh, okay, maybe I'm the, I'm the best brewery on the street. Well, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta want to be the best brewer in the zip code, even even if it's a disputed claim. Uh, <laughs> sure. if, you, if you're not trying, I don't know what you're in the business for. Right. Nine out of ten of our customers say we're the best brewery on the <laughs> in Westmoreland. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Zach. This has actually been uh, really interesting and elucidating. Uh, you have a—it's a, a, actually pretty well named. It's kind of a unicorn business. There's—I've uh, not encountered any business like this, so I think it's well named. And uh, we will look for your beer. And, and if you come to Portland, come down to Westmoreland and, and sit in the pub and try some of Zach's beer. thank you. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Yeah, the like-
1: clink. Uh, once again, thanks to Zach uh, Vestal for taking us around and showing us his business. Um, as I mentioned, personally, this is a business that's been in my neighborhood for a number of years. I've I've uh, uh, been a customer of the homebrew shop from time to time, and uh, in in yeah, years ago, I uh, uh, visited the pub. In fact, Jeff and I visited together, um, and sort of uh, quickly, for- <laughs> not quickly, forgot about, it, but just sort of didn't become. A place that I thought about too much is not getting a lot of hype. It's small. Uh, But the beer is fantastic, so it's definitely worth checking
0: out. And the pub, while small, is a a proper pub. Uh, It's got wood paneling and feels cozy. Uh, It's got a nice bar. So uh, if you are into pubby feng shui, um, this has got it. So go check out the beer there, and uh, especially if you like... uh, uh, cl- kind of classic styles i think it's uh, one of those places you got to check out
1: yeah and while we were there i had the uh, uh the esb which listeners of the pod knows i'm a huge fan of in general as a style and he's got a fantastic one that uses willamette hops it's very traditional willamette hops uh, uh are a, a genetic kin to fuggles right? right i'm checking i'm looking at Jeff to make sure i don't get that screwed up uh, <laughs> and so it's a it's a light bulb version um um, and
0: I was drinking the Kolsch, so when we recorded the, this section that we're re-recording now, because we'd botched it the first time, we had these beers in our hands, and I had the nice Kolsch, uh, which uh, w- had a, a little whiff of sulfur on the nose, which I super loved, because it reminds me of lagers, and it's, uh, we didn't talk, we didn't do our, uh, uh, our check-in on the weather, but Portland, it's summer now, <laughs> and so um, it's lager weather, it's Kolsch weather, and it was really hitting the spot.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so it's definitely definitely worth the trip. It's on uh, Milwaukee Avenue if you're in Portland, um, in the Westmoreland neighborhood. By the way, it's it doesn't uh, it doesn't really serve food itself, but uh, it's it's uh, neighbors to a taqueria. and uh, in very close proximity are a couple of really great food carts, um, and uh, uh, the uh, cheese cheesesteak place, and a few other places. So, uh, great place to go and and hang out, drink beer, and then if you're hungry, you can get food uh, right next door.
0: Yeah, cool. Uh, Becoming a more traditional uh, setup in Portland and probably elsewhere. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So very cool. Thanks, Zach.
1: All right. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed that interview. And now we have a few words going out. So please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us five stars please that helps other listeners find the show uh, we'd love to hear from you so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeerVanaBlog.com blogcom or on Twitter at birvana pod Jeff blogs at the Birvana blog and he tweets at BeerVana.
0: and Patrick tweets at BeerNomics. and
1: I should mention that we're we're going a mail, mailbag this week because next week's show is going to be a uh, what I what I Told Jeff we should call a pub chat, which is basically uh, Jeff and I discussing mail and uh, goings on in the industry and lots of other wonderful things. So you should tune in.
0: Yeah, and we were going to do it in a pub. We were going to record it while we were still in the the, the brewery, but uh, we had this technical difficulty, and so now we're not going to do it there. So yeah, it,
1: it turns out we're too old and technically inept to uh, to figure that one out. So it'll be <laughs> it'll be pub talk from my backyard. That's right. All right, well, uh, I'm, a, I'm lifting my imaginary ESB. <laughs> you have your imaginary Kulsh. So cheers, Jeff.
0: Cheers, Patrick.